All right, all right. What's going on, guys? It's Evan Transu, a.k.a. Mr. Health Coach Ev, and we are back with another episode. Thanks for tuning in. This is the one-year anniversary episode. I cannot believe this podcast has been going on for a year. I would just like to take a second to thank every single person who has listened to this, every person who has shared this podcast, and especially everyone who has taken the time out of their schedules and lives to come on here and record with us. Guys, we don't have funding or anything like that. I'm not paying these people to come on. And even the entrepreneurial people, especially in the beginning of the podcast, when this was just getting rolling, they came on and they knew that this thing had absolutely nothing to offer them at the time. There was no guarantee that they're going to get a client or a sale by mentioning their services at the end. We haven't had one sponsorship yet. I can't say that's going to be true forever. I mean, it would be nice to generate some revenue off of this with a little more time, but you know, we've went a full year without any sponsorships out without paying anyone. So this has been really cool to see people just come together to make this happen. And the messages that I've gotten have been fantastic. The people that I've met, it's been an incredible experience all around. I've heard some of the toughest stories that you can imagine. And if you've listened throughout the year, perhaps you have as well. And these people, man, they just keep fighting and keep going. And they they truly are the epitome of what we're looking for, right? Overcoming mental health challenges. They're the poster children and adults for that. And just to hear their stories has been so inspiring. So I'm really just grateful to be able to do this, to be able to bring these episodes to you and for everyone out there who listens. So we are going to keep pushing forward here, hopefully only getting bigger and more consistent as time goes on. But it's always fun because any project in life, when you first start it, they always say the, the hardest part is starting, right? And when I look back on a year, the year went by so fast. And I'm just sitting here thinking, wow, I can't believe that this has gone on for a year. I'm so glad I started this. It was my buddy Joey Zatmary that encouraged me to start it. I go back and forth. I will fully admit I absolutely overall hate social media. I hate what it does to us as human beings, but I do believe everything in this world has two sides to it. And I think there's a positive way to use social media, and I'm doing my best to be a part of that positive. And I try to follow with and engage with people, or excuse me, follow and engage with people who are also using that positive. So I'm doing my best. My point in saying that was I was hesitant to get even more involved with social. If you actually go back to a year ago, I was somewhat inconsistent with social. I mean, I wouldn't post for weeks at a time at certain points, especially on Facebook and that platform. But now I'm posting quite frequently. I'm doing my best to post and not consume. <laughs> so I'll kind of get on and try to get off. I delete it throughout the day. But I look for those things that I really love and really enjoy doing. And this is one of them. And I know we're getting results with this. So again, we're going to keep pushing forward as long as possible with this. So a little bit different today. In my first episode, it was the intro and Evan's fear of flying, and I shared at that time how just a few days before recording, I had gotten on a plane for the first time in about, had to be 11 or 12 years, and that was all thanks to my friends Vince and Carly, and they helped me out. I had a huge, huge fear of flying, 
But that was one of those things where even though I resolved, if you know my story, or <laughs> I guess you're listening because you're about to hear it, I was able to resolve my mental health issues eventually, but that was a little different for something like a plane, right? I knew I didn't walk around having panic attacks anymore. I knew I wasn't walking around being depressed anymore, but that's a scary thing. It's like, okay, am I really not afraid of planes? And even if you've overcome the mental health issues, well, does that translate to phobic level fears of certain things? And I cannot say I do not get nervous on planes. I absolutely do. But I was able to get on with them that day with a little help from Western Medicine. And after that, you know, I just didn't really need that. I've been on 12 different flights in the past year. So pretty much averaging one a month. And I've been good to go. Every single one of those has been solo too, except the first two. Me and my friends, Vincent Carly, we flew from Boston and back just a court shit. Uh, excuse me, a quick, short little one from Philadelphia to there. So it was only like a 40 minute in the air flight, but that's why we did that just to get myself adjusted to it and used to it. So I said at that time though, one day I'm going to, you know, do myself on this podcast and share my story. So I think the one year anniversary is a great time to be doing that. So I do not have someone interviewing me For those of you that know me outside of this, I do speak professionally, so I'm kind of used to sharing my story, and I was confident enough to do this by myself, so I think I'm still going to be able to get the right message across to people. So I will start off, though, in the same way that we start off with everyone who comes on this podcast, and the first question I always ask them is, what were you like as a kid? So I think I'm just going to start there from the beginning and then kind of let it flow. Well, Evan Transu as a kid was... Pretty much just as weird as he is now. No, I'm kidding. But I I was a happy kid overall. I had a good life. I grew up in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. I had family that cared about me and loved me. Pretty big family, relatively big family. I had a lot of different friends. I, Especially when I was younger, I was pretty popular in school and was able to get along really well with mostly everyone that I met. And the main thing that I had going for me was I did really well in school. So I would not consider myself the most athletically inclined. I wasn't necessarily the best at talking to people, but I was always very good at school. I just kind of, it was one of those things where I picked it up naturally. I just, I wasn't, you're not thinking about that in that five to 12 year old range, which is what we always refer to on this podcast when we're asking what the person was like as a kid. It's not something you really think about, right? You're not talking in your head saying, oh, I need to do well in school because I need to build a great future for myself. That That's not something that I don't think most people are, are thinking about unless it's been drilled in them by their parents or something. So I did well enough and that was cool. And it, it didn't mean really anything to me later and until later in life when I kind of understood, okay, maybe I should be doing something with either science or academics or something along those lines and and putting the brain to good use. But I remember my aunt calling my parents when I was younger. And in Pennsylvania, we have something called the PSSAs. So those are like the Pennsylvania State Standardized Assessments or something like that. And I'm not sure if it's even PSSAs anymore. It might be Keystones now. I don't know if they have both. (laughs) Thankfully, I have not had to do those in a good amount of time. But we had about 14, 13, 1400 kids in every grade throughout our school district, Central Bucks School District. So my aunt called my uh, mom the one day and she said, hey, I just, because my aunt worked in the school district, she's pretty high up in it. And she said, I, I just need to let you know, Evan scored in like the top six kids for the math PSSA 
um, out of all the other kids in the district. And again, that didn't mean anything to me at the time. And I'm not saying that at all to try to impress you guys or anything like that. The reason I say that is because I don't share this often, but I believe that is a part of my story. And I do believe that was something that exacerbated, not caused, but exacerbated my issues with anxiety and eventually with depression and substance abuse. I remember, and my parents will even still tell me this to this day, being as young as four or five years old and asking my parents, you know, what happens after we die? And this wasn't just some random thought. Like I was genuinely being inquisitive about that subject. I wanted someone to be able to give me an answer and someone to show me that there was meaning to this life. And I'm not saying I was depressed about it or something then, but I was painfully aware of my own mortality. I'll, I'll think that's the best way to describe it. I was just very aware that no one could explain to me accurately or logically, I should say, where we come from, where we're going. And I know everyone has their beliefs and I respect their beliefs and I have uh, my own beliefs at this point in my life. But at the time, you have to remember, even if you're a religious person, even if your religion is true and accurate, that's not a logical thing. That's a faith-based thing. It's an emotional-based thing. And that's, again, totally cool. That's something that I still practice to this day now. But at the time, I just understood no one can tell me what's going on. So the reason I mentioned that part about, you know, kind of being a nerdy guy is because those types of thoughts were present from a very young age. And I had the intellectual ability to question something like that, but I did not have the emotional maturity, I guess, to comfortably conceptualize those thoughts. So I could ask the question, but when I didn't get the answer that I wanted, it was really hard for me. I think as an adult, some of us, you know, we constantly wonder what's in store for us after this. Does this have any meaning, this existence? And that can be really uncomfortable to think about no matter how old you are. So at four, five, six years old, it was just almost unbearable to humor those types of thoughts. Overall, again, I had a pretty good life. I was pretty happy. 95% of the time, I would say roughly, I was good. But even as young as five years old, there were warning, time, warning signs excuse me, happening about 5% of the time. Those warning signs were something called panic attacks. And if you've listened to this podcast before, if you have any general interest in mental health, you're probably familiar with a panic attack, what a panic attack is. But nonetheless, I'll touch on that in a second. But I would get these panic attacks. And I remember one from that age where I was like freaking out on my school bus. And my parents have a really long driveway back to their house. It's about seven, 800 feet. So it's a good little sprint. Um, and I got off the bus and I was just in that fight or flight mode because I was having a panic attack on the bus. And I just sprinted down that driveway into the house. I'm freaking out, whatever. And this was something that was concerning to my mom when she saw me after I got home. So I remember we went to a doctor at that age and this was a totally well-meaning guy, like no problems with him, not a mean guy, not a malicious guy. I don't believe that for one second. But he even said at the time, you know, this is just Evan getting himself a little too worked up. I remember him saying, your heart beats too fast because you were running down the driveway. And I wasn't really able to accurately explain like, no, man, I'm running down the driveway because my heart's beating too fast. And I have this array of other symptoms happening at the same time. 
So I wasn't able to explain that, but it got written off basically. Not by my parents, but by the doctor. And again, this wasn't really something that happened all of the time. It was maybe 5% of the time. I'd say if I had to guess, I mean, maybe once or twice a month. So it's not that no one cared. They definitely did. But the rest of the time, I'm this really happy kid that has a good life and does well in school. And I mean, what more can you ask for? You know, there was nothing really bad to look at. So I think over time, it just kind of got a little swept under the rug. And especially the doctor saying that really didn't help things, despite him meaning, well, that was something that had probably a bigger impact than he would ever realize. So as I said, he mentioned that I would outgrow this. This wouldn't be something to necessarily worry about. But as time went on, it became clear that this was not something I was going to outgrow. In fact, it got a lot worse. I lived a relatively normal life from, let's say, five years old to 14, 15 years old. I was definitely an anxious guy. I was definitely someone who worried more than the average person. I was someone who dealt with panic attacks, except, you know, every now and then they'd go away for a while and I wouldn't really have to deal with one. But these were definitely recurring themes in my life. And at 15 years old, I had another panic attack that really set the stage for the next few years after that, which would be, honestly, without trying to be dramatic or anything, I mean, really a mental health hell. I was hanging out with my friends this one night, and, you know, again, we're 14, 15-year-old guys, we're having a good time, you know, we just, you're in this great phase of life where, hopefully, I mean, I know everyone's circumstance is a little different, but hopefully... You don't have too many worries in life. And that was definitely the case for us. We were blessed like that. And we're hanging out in that neighborhood. You know the neighborhood that all of your friends hang out with when you're younger. We're talking to the neighborhood girls. You know, it's just, it's a good life, man. You go to the local shopping center and you buy pizza and all this stuff. And that's exactly what we did that day. You know, we hung out with our friends. Um, we hung out with our girlfriends and we went to the store. We got our pizza, junk, candy, all that crap. And we just had a great time outside. It was just that classic kid fun that is so innocent and so stupid and only really happens at that time in your life. And then towards the end of the night, so we had been hanging out for hours. I mean, we would, oh my gosh, we'd hang out all day when we were in that neighborhood. So I didn't live there though. And a couple of the other friends that were hanging out that day didn't live there either. So our parents had to pick us up. We're 15 years old. You know, we had an 11 o'clock curfew and that was really so long as we were at someone else's house, right? It wasn't kind of go hang around in the neighborhood till 11 o'clock at that age. It was, you know, if you're at someone's house, someone's parents watching it, that's cool. So we walk into my buddy's house and his mom and stepdad are upstairs and we go down into the basement. There's about four or five of us. And we haven't even been down there for five minutes. We're only about, you know, 40 minutes, 50 minutes away from getting picked up. And I mean, out of nowhere, I feel one of these panic attacks about to come on. Now, you got to understand, since this didn't get properly diagnosed from day one, from that five years old range, I didn't really go to the doctors about this again, um, at least until that point. Um, so... I didn't know what this was. I mean, I knew that I was an anxious guy, like I had that understanding, but I couldn't really explain to you what a panic attack was. I didn't have a grasp on the concept. And to me, I just, honestly, I thought I was crazy. That's really what I thought was wrong with me. I always had felt 
despite being popular when I was younger, and I fit in well enough with most other groups, but I always felt outcast, and I felt like I had to be someone else to really get that acceptance and to fit in in groups. And that was especially confirmed, I should say, that thought was confirmed by these issues with mental health. Because when I was having a panic attack, I mean, it just felt like I was going to die. And that's what happened that day. I, Again, we were not in there for any time at all, but we're sitting on the couch and I feel myself not being able to breathe. Or what feels, again, like I can't breathe even if I can. And at first... You know, when a symptom like that happens, I don't know about you guys, but it's almost like you check yourself a little bit. I'm like, okay, I, I can't breathe. Hold on, hold on. I'm not going to go full freak out yet. Let's just see what's happening. Let's see what's going on. And I take another breath and a third breath. And I'm realizing that, okay, I'm not feeling too good. And my chest is getting really tight. And once that third, fourth, fifth breath came in and I realized something's changed in my physiology, now I am in full out panic mode. I did not tell my friends what was going on. I just shot up off the couch and I sprinted upstairs, just like I sprinted down that driveway. So not to go off on a side note, but there is something called the fight, flight, and now we call it fight, flight, freeze response. So it's right in the name, right? As in response to adrenaline, some people are kind of wired to flee the scene. Some people are kind of wired to fight whatever it is that's bothering them and other people just totally freeze, tense up. So you can kind of think about maybe which one you are if you've ever been in a really anxiety-provoking situation. And depending on the circumstance, of course, it could kind of jump back and forth to which one you resort to. But I was always someone that went into that flight mode. It was like, let's get the heck out of here. So I sprinted up the stairs and I start yelling for his mom and stepdad. And I'm just like, I can't breathe. You know, I need help. I need help. And I'm just feeling my chest so tight. My breathing's not right. My thoughts are racing. Everything in my body is telling me that I'm going to die. This is the time. I need help immediately. So the mom took this so seriously. I was, this is a very good friend of mine, right? So she took this so seriously. I mean, she's watching over us. And in a matter of a minute or two, you know, we're out in the car, me, my friend that lived there, and the mom, the stepdad stayed with the other guys, and we are in the car just flying over to the hospital. So the hospital is only like a seven or eight minute drive from their house, and I just remember the first couple of minutes were so intense. I'm being serious. I had never had this any other panic attack that I remember, but I had a genuine experience of my life flashing before my eyes. It was not as dramatic or, and I don't mean dramatic in a negative way, but I mean dramatic as in terms of it being expressed in the mind, or serious as some of the ones I've heard described, but really my my thoughts started going to the past and they started racing up until this point, but they were racing in such a way that I still had a clarity. And I feel like that's a clarity that you can only kind of have in that adrenaline response. It's like, you know that your brain is flying but I'm also kind of processing the information perfectly well as if it wasn't flying. And there was just a second in that car where I'm like, I'm going to die. I, I genuinely believed that I was going to die. So we're driving along and during the last little bit towards the hospital, maybe two, three minutes, this all happened in a very quick span. This was only like a 15 minute process overall. I feel myself kind of calming down. And during that moment, 
I'm starting to think because now I'm getting a hold of my thoughts and I'm realizing, wait a second, I have felt this feeling before. I don't know exactly what this is. Again, kind of knew that it was an anxiety type thing. But I felt this before. It always tricks me. It always tells me I'm going to die. It always makes me feel like I'm losing my mind. And it always goes away almost just as fast as it came on. And I'm always fine afterwards. Now, here's the thing. I'm in the car with my friend, with his mom. I have never once in my life showed these types of feelings to friends or anyone not in my family. And I did a very good job of hiding it from my family. But I always tried to underplay it. I mean, I still had it, those experiences in front of my family. I think I had one in front of my friends when I was younger, but it was really young, so it was very easy to play off, and that's a whole separate conversation. It's in my book, but um, it's the one in fifth grade in the hallway, but that was never even, no one even would have thought that was anxiety, so that was easy enough to write away, but I wasn't really someone who shared this stuff, again, because I had, I, I just thought this was part of me, I thought this was who I am, I thought it was an inherent trait of my personality, and again, I kind of thought I was crazy. So we get to the hospital, and again, a couple of minutes ago, I started to realize what this was, but I can't tell these people. I mean, I freaked them out, man. They were scared. They believed me. They believed me with every cell in their being. They thought Evan is going to die. They definitely didn't understand why. They didn't know how, but they believed what I was saying, so I appreciated that. And I didn't know how to explain that, hey, guys, this is just something that happens to me every now and then. Sorry, it kind of hasn't happened to me in a little bit, so I sometimes just forget what this is like, and I'm fine now. I don't know how to explain that to you, but I'm fine now. I didn't want to do that, so I kept acting as if, okay, this is still going on, and I got to the hospital, and the first thing they do if you come in with most things, but especially if you say you can't breathe, is they check your vital signs, they check to see how much oxygen you're getting, and of course my numbers came up pretty much perfect, slightly elevated heart rate still, but overall my numbers were fine. And so that calmed the nurse down right away, I'm still kind of freaking out. And during the time that I was in the hospital, right in that beginning part, my friend's mom called my parents and they came and met us there. I don't remember the rest of the night too well, I was pretty embarrassed and it's weird because I don't think I fully understood just how much this affected me until I wrote my book, but I have a really good memory. Like I said, I'm kind of a nerd. I'm not bragging or anything like that. There's a million things I am bad at. In fact, I was bad at most things other than school and intellectual type stuff when I was younger. But I always had a good memory. And looking back on my life now, there are certain parts that are just almost completely blanked out and... I can only imagine that I did that as kind of a defense mechanism, but I don't know when I lost the memory because at some point I did have it, but now I don't. So I don't really remember what uh, remember what the rest of the night was like, but I know I went home, pretty sure I hopped in the shower or something, and that's about the extent of it. I just remember waking up the next day and thinking, wow, that was embarrassing. I don't even fully recall what I did to play it off off the top of my head. But what I didn't know was that that night with that panic attack 
was going to be the start, as I kind of mentioned before I told the story, of a very serious time in my mental health journey. That first panic attack, for whatever reason, even though I had experienced that countless times throughout my life, maybe not that severe, but other countless times, nonetheless countless times throughout my life, that was going to be the beginning of daily panic attacks for multiple months. And when I say daily, I mean daily. I mean minimum one a day, sometimes and often enough multiple times a day. And when I'm not having a panic attack, I am in this state of dread meets exhaustion. Because when you have a panic attack, you are just flying on adrenaline. I mean, it is energy-wise, it's one of the most intense bursts of energy I've ever felt. But what goes up must come down. So there is this crash after it. But the problem is when you're having it multiple times a day, there is no way that you can recover properly from the stress that that has on your body and the toll that that takes. So I'm constantly anxious, worrying about when this next one's going to come on. But I'm also exhausted. That didn't happen the first day, but a week or two in, I'm exhausted. I got nothing left. Mind you, this happened at the end of the school year, but not so much the end that we didn't have school. I mean, this was in early spring, kind of. And I'm trying to do my normal school life while this is going on, and that is just not working at all. I was able to keep up with certain things. Math was something, again, I was good at, and I was able to do well enough in that. I mean, I could go in there and pretty much not pay attention at all and still figure it out at that age, thankfully. But the other stuff, if I didn't have even the most minimal interest in it, then it it meant nothing. I, I couldn't do anything with it. And my grades were not failing, but they started to slack a little bit in that ninth grade year. And part of the reason was I'm starting to miss school. It became a joke amongst my friends that I took every Wednesday off. And I swear to you, I wasn't just taking the Wednesday off trying to be a bum or something like that, but I felt so bad. I would make some type of excuse up to my parents. And it really wasn't an excuse because I probably didn't look great. So I don't think for one second they thought I was lying, but I just couldn't keep up with it anymore. I I couldn't go to school. I was exhausted. I'm staying up all night some nights. And at the very best, I'm staying up till 1 or 2 in the morning. And for school, you know, you got to be up at 6 a.m. So I just wasn't able to keep up with that schedule, and I was just burning out. Now, during those months, I that was probably the most work I ever did willingly during the times of dealing with severe mental health issues. So we did go to the doctor once. They recommended Xanax. My parents didn't want me on that. And I think that was a good choice looking back overall. We went to an allergist to see if I was reacting to something. I went to the hospital multiple times because I freaked myself out so bad and was so convinced that I was going to die that my parents took me there. But regardless, um, or nonetheless, I should say, nothing was really found. There was no answers. And After I didn't get any answers from it, I kind of gave up and I did my best to hide what I was going through. Now, sometimes that was impossible and it was obvious to my parents what was going on. But once summer came around, so three and a half, four months after that first panic attack that started the daily panic attacks, 
it, everything kind of chilled out a little bit. And I don't mean to say that things were good, but I could avoid the daily panic attacks, thankfully. And I think one of the reasons for that, because I've said that before and people immediately assume it must have had something to do with school. I don't think so. Because I had panic attacks no matter when it was. I mean, I was you know, five years old at one point, four years old at one point before I was even ever really in school and I already had dealt with panic attacks. So I don't think it was that. But what happened in summer is two things. One, you have a general less stress that comes. You don't have those obligations that happen uh, with school. So again, I don't think it was specifically school, but those obligations that I did have mixed in with these mental health challenges, yes, it did. Again, it was one of those things that exacerbated it, not necessarily caused it. The other thing is, though, I'm able to sleep in if I needed. So I would still stay up all night. I'd be up very late because I couldn't really fall asleep. But once I finally did, it's not like I had to be up the next day at 6 a.m. I didn't have a real job at that time that I worked often, even in the summer. There was nothing like set in stone that I had to be doing so it was okay to sleep in till 11 or 12 o'clock on um, 11 a.m or 12 p.m so I was able to do that that kind of helped getting that rest definitely added to it but that summer would also bring on some new problems I was so defeated by the anxiety that I was feeling even if it wasn't daily it was still awful and there was definitely a generalized anxiety or what I would later find out was generalized anxiety disorder there where I was just constantly on edge I had all the symptoms I just didn't know everything about it I mean I had this pain in my shoulders all the time tension headaches I remember I'm not even being I'm not exaggerating with this I used to take ibuprofen all the time when I was younger like ah that's Motrin and Advil and when I took that, like two or three of them, with, again, without any exaggeration, that was almost euphoric because my neck and shoulders would be in so much pain that when I felt relief from it, I just felt like almost high, not in a debilitated sense. It's not like I'm out of it uh, mentally. I just mean like euphoric. I'm like, whoa, like this is great. I feel so much better in that sense. So there was so much going on with the generalized anxiety and eventually that led to what I then or now know was depression. And depression was not something that would get recognized or diagnosed for almost two and a half, three years later. But depression changed me as a person. Depression was something that I allowed to have an effect on my actions and personality more so than anxiety. The difference with anxiety or a panic attack is, well, let's start with a panic attack. The difference with a panic attack is I get into this extremely freaked out mode. I'm going crazy energy-wise, and then I come down, I relax a bit, and I'm back to overall normal Evan. Generalized anxiety is kind of like this baseline thing where, again, not that it's actually funny, but it becomes almost a joke that I just looked like one of those worrywart type of people. Oh, Evan always gets a little anxious about things. Oh, he always gets a little freaked out about things. So it's not that I was really different necessarily. I just had that kind of baseline worrywartness to me. Depression, after it kicked in fully, made me look like someone that I was not and for a time I did just overall change as a person and I wasn't Evan Transu anymore 
I typically, if I'm talking in a school, I talk about the different stages that I went through, but I don't think that those are as relevant to this particular podcast. So I'm going to skip out on them overall today and just maybe talk about one or two incidences during that time and how it kind of manifested overall. Once depression kicked in, I became an angry person. I had always, if you had asked me at 13 years old, Evan, what is depression? I didn't really have an idea. I don't think I would have known that well, but I thought depression, I guess, was people who cried their eyes out uncontrollably or people who laid in bed all day or people who maybe stopped doing activities that they once loved. I think I knew that one. So that's what 13-year-old me would have said. It's not an incomplete answer. It's not even the worst answer in the world. All of those things technically could be a part of depression, but it's not the only things that make up depression, and depression doesn't have to be any of those things. So I didn't really recognize what this was, and I wouldn't have thought that it was depression, because again, I really only thought it could be those three things if you had even asked me, what is depression? Depression for me, though, looked like emotional numbness. I did have times where I would consider myself sad, but I would not say that was the primary symptom for me with depression. It was a numbness. I didn't feel much of anything other than extreme anger and irritability at times. I didn't really react to much. If something overall good happened, it was kind of like a, oh, okay. If something really bad happened, it was kind of like a, oh, okay. It, it's just this numbness this shielded offness from the world and the things that were happening to me. And I want to be very clear. I might say this again, as I have a tendency to say it, because I, I like the message to get across 100%. But I want to say it before I get into anything else, I'm not justifying anything that I did during my state of depression. I still made decisions that led to some very poor outcomes in my life. But I do not consider justification and explanation to be synonymous. And I'm going to say that again just so people get it. I do not consider justification to be synonymous with explanation. So justification is blaming every little bad, mean, stupid thing that I've done on depression. That's not what I'm doing. Explanation is explaining that perhaps if depression would not have been a factor in my life, my actions, behaviors, and overall outcomes in life would have been different. I do think that is absolutely true. And I think that's true for a lot of people. So I walk this fine line. I hear some crazy stories sometimes, man. And I hate to use the word crazy. I know I should be more politically correct with mental health, especially as someone in this space. But I hope you guys out there are listening, know me well enough, or have heard another podcast. I don't mean crazy in the derogatory term. I'm talking about myself for crying out loud. It, that's not how I mean it. I did some really odd stuff and I hear some people that have done some odd stuff and I never, again, want to just give them some free pass and just say, oh, okay, well, you hurt this person or you did this bad thing or you hurt yourself. That's okay. You were depressed. I never want to do that, but I understand. And some people tell me their stories and I think they expect me, they're, they're almost saying it with hesitancy, right? They're like, oh, he's going to judge me for this or he's going to not understand. And, and I do. Even if I haven't done exactly what they've done, or I remember a friend the one time told me, and I'm not going to name names, I'm not even going to name the gender, but they had said they like gave themselves their own tattoos, or it was something along those lines, but they did it almost as a form of self-harm. And they said it in a way where almost like they were testing me to like see how I was going to react, and 
Have I ever done that? No. Does that sound a little strange to me off first glance? Yes, it does. But I get it. Uh, and I understand where these things come from because depression and even anxiety at times has made me do some things that Evan Trancy wouldn't otherwise normally do. So with that said, as depression manifested, I just I became a really angry guy. I was highly irritable. I treated people in my life pretty poorly and I treated myself even worse, to be honest. About a month into that summer, so... Now, still 15 years old, these panic attacks happen daily for three and a half, four months. Somewhere during that time, depression had started to kick in, and it was in full force by the time that summer came around. All my friends have transitioned to that age where people are experimenting with drugs, weed, and alcohol mainly at that time, and actually mostly weed. My friend group wasn't really big on alcohol at that time. It was always a weed group. And I was the last person in my friend group to ever try that stuff. And not because I was so perfect, but because I was scared. I mean, that's how bad my anxiety was. A lot of people say they use drugs for anxiety. I had such bad anxiety that most drugs and substances, the idea of being that taken away from reality, scared the heck out of me. I didn't want to feel out of control. So it wasn't that I was the last person in my friend group because I was just such a great kid. Um, I'd love to believe that, but that's not really the reality. It was more because I was terrified. But that's what depression changed in me. Depression made me a little more impulsive. Depression made me do or consider things, I should say, that I wouldn't have previously considered because I just wanted to feel something other than this numbness that I felt. And I remember the first time I finally gave in and... You know, I'd watched my friends do this a bunch of times. I'd hung out with them a bunch of times while doing it, but I started smoking weed. And the first few times, I don't know if I just wasn't doing it right or what, but I didn't feel much. I felt bad. I didn't feel good. I wasn't high. I just felt out of it. Uh, we were also, full disclaimer, smoking out of an aluminum uh, can, like a soda can, that we had made a bowl out of. So, yeah, health coach out of has come a long way. <laughs> um but, you know, we didn't we didn't know how to get the pieces. We, you know, that's what they call paraphernalia. We didn't know how to get that. So that's that's what we did. None of us knew how to roll a joint. So that's what we were using in the beginning. And it was about the fourth time we were hanging out with some of uh, a friend's older brother. And that guy knew how to roll a joint. He had, you know, pieces and we used those. And that was the first time in my life that I got high. And I remember it pretty well. I was on the back porch. It was a summer night. It was one of those perfect nights to be hanging out with friends. It was beautiful out. You know, you could be out in shorts and t-shirt, but it's 9 p.m. And I could feel my just entire body change. And I never really used, I didn't use a drug in my life. I wasn't even someone who consumed caffeine as a kid. I mean, I ate chocolate and stuff, but I never liked soda. So I wasn't someone that used those things. I never had really been disassociated from reality because of a drug. I felt that way because of anxiety, but not because of something that I voluntarily took. And I was just like whacked out, man. I mean, I was stoned. <laughs> I'll be honest about it. And it was this mix of good and bad. There is, you know, if you smoke something like weed, it's going to force feel-good chemicals to be released. It's going to have dopamine. I think endorphins get released with marijuana as well. So there's some good aspect there, 
But I'm also kind of freaking out. I mean, my heart rate was through the roof. It's one of those times where you're sitting in a chair and I could feel it pounding through my chest. So <laughs> I'm kind of this mix of, okay, this feels good. This is definitely different than being numb. But I am also freaking out. Is this okay? Can this stuff kill you? Am I going to die? <laughs> there, there was definitely some mixed emotions. But nonetheless, I got through the night. I figured it out. And I tried it again. Now, the first few times, I got pretty anxious. And the probably, it's I mean, it's hard to say the exact number, 7th or 8th maybe, uh, first few times actually getting high, that is when I had a full-out panic attack while high on weed. And I know no one out there listening has committed any sins in their life, and you are all perfect and have probably never smoked marijuana in your younger days. But just in case you have, you may have had one of those classic panic attacks that almost anyone, even the biggest potheads in the world, have experienced after smoking sometimes. And wow, you want to talk about a panic attack, that is one that is going to, you're going to remember that. I'll put it that way. I was freaking out. I called my parents. My parents had a rule. They told my sister and I when we were pretty young, they're like, we will never get mad at you for anything that you do. If you please just call us. And they did stand by that. We definitely had a talk about the fact that I was high. Um, that was certainly not something that was welcomed, but they didn't ground me. I had called, I followed their rules, and you know I did what they said, and they were just glad I was okay. And they had assumed that the lesson was just one that would teach itself. I mean, I was so scared that I called mommy and daddy. you think that this would be something I wouldn't be doing again. And that was true for a time. I told my friends, I'm like, dude, I, I can't do this. Like, that's not something I enjoy. I'm freaking out. I, I don't want to be doing this. I'm embarrassed. And of course, my parents are going to be high, on high guard now. And that worked for about a month. And then I tried it again. And I was like, okay, I'm kind of anxious. And then, you know, skipped a few weeks. But somewhere along the lines, I just said, okay, I'm going to try it again, try it again. And maybe this was just from hanging out with friends. I don't mean to imply peer pressure. I'm not blaming it on my friends. They were pretty cool friends. I made a decision. You know, we all made decisions in, our, in that friend group. No one really forced each other to do anything, I wouldn't say. So eventually I just got used to the feeling of smoking. And even if I was anxious with it, it was kind of so predictable that I was like, okay, at least I don't feel numb. At least I don't feel, you know, totally pissed off and angry. And pretty quickly, I went from the person in the friend group who was the last to try any drug to the person in the friend group who had kind of the biggest problem. I was the person that needed to smoke weed every single day. And it was just something that took me to a different spot it was something that made me feel, I don't even know if better is the right word. And I swear I'm not just saying this now to try to get people to not do it or younger people to not do it. I, I really mean it. I, I don't know that I was better. It was just different. It just wasn't numb. But there was many times that I was anxious with it. There was many times I was stressed out. I was highly paranoid, always worried that I was going to get caught by the cops or caught by my parents or caught by teachers when I eventually started smoking before school or as embarrassing as it is to admit even in school but I was smoking all the time and listen I'm not comparing weed to heroin or something very serious that people have suffered with addiction with and you know have had severe addictions to but I am sorry 
I do not for one second believe, not only from my own experience, but from what I've seen in other people throughout my life, that weed does not have potential to be addictive. I am not saying it's going to kill you or cause some serious withdrawal if you stop using it. There's not really any science to support that. But there is something to it, man. It's a very powerful psychological addiction. And I know many people that have smoked weed for years upon years, every single day, without really a break. And I just can't help but believe that that's, you know, classifying as addiction. I mean, they how could you want to smoke every single day? But I digress. I started doing that. And it kind of worked for a little bit, I'll be honest. I mean, I still had some downsides to it. But the first month and a half, two months, it really helped with my sleep. I could <laughs> kind of sleep whenever I wanted. So it was good for that. And the rest helped me out a little bit. But it didn't help anything else, and that was a very short-lived thing. After the two months was up, it kind of had this negative effect where slowly it started to work less and less, and I didn't feel much of the good that I had once felt from it. And this was a slow, gradual process, like I said, but it started trending downhill. But the problem was... I was chasing those feelings that I had in the beginning. I wanted to feel better. I didn't want to feel depressed. And if nothing else, being high just took me away from it. I didn't have to deal with that crap for a while. Or at least I felt like I didn't have to. I remember times that it would tease me because it would work again. But it would only work, you know, once out of like every, let's say, two weeks. I remember sitting on the back porch of a friend's house and she was doing homework and (laughs) of all things while I'm sitting there smoking weed and we're just hanging out and it was like kind of dusk and her parents were at home they're still at work and I felt so bad and I smoked and it was like it got lifted out of me I remember her even saying she's like you just seem so different like you seem so much better and I was like okay so I had these little times where it would kind of reaffirm itself to me that oh yeah this is a good thing to be doing this is okay this is helping you But eventually, I just really wasn't getting high anymore. At some point, I actually started selling weed myself to support my habit. I couldn't afford to smoke every single day. And weed just wasn't doing it for me anymore. That was a baseline thing now. I needed that just to function and feel normal. So the second thing that I tried was something called Xanax or Alprazolam. Now, that's in the benzodiazepine family. So if you know drugs like Ativan, Klonopin, a.k.a. K-pins, um, Diazepam, which is Valium. It's in the same class as that. And you'll remember that I said at one point during those panic attacks, my parents took me to the doctor and the doctor had recommended Xanax, but we decided against it. Now, I remembered that. And I said to myself, okay, well, if that works for, like if that's what was recommended to me, I should be able to take that, but I didn't want to tell my family. So I started using the money that I had from selling weed to buy this myself. And I would abuse this drug. It was weird how the tables had turned. I went from the last person in my friend group to try a drug. Now I'm the one that needs a drug every single day. And I was the first one in my friend group to bring in Xanax. I'm not going to get too detailed into this, but Xanax was one of those drugs that I wish I never took. And that is actually because it worked so well. I don't I don't really hide things, guys. I'm fully transparent, if you can't already tell. So I'm just being honest. It, it did work. And 
it felt amazing. It was calm. I wasn't anxious. It took away that pain that I carried around in my neck, similar to how an ibuprofen would have. And I just remember those first few times I took it. I was by myself. I wasn't trying to like get high. I took a very small amount uh, because I did all this research online trying to figure out what the dosages were, what was safe, could it kill you, all these things. Could I mix it with wheat? Um, and I took it by myself in my room like after I was like locked in for the night. And I was just like, wow, it, it felt great. I was like, this is how I'm supposed to feel. This is what normal people feel. And I've never really felt this fully um, in my life. Now, the problem with playing doctor is that because that felt so good, very quickly I went from those smaller doses to much larger doses. And by very quickly, I mean a couple of weeks. I had originally bought this from a friend's brother and he only sold me so much because it was his prescription. He was a weed head. So I'd sell him weed, give him some weed, and he would give me that. So I used the money to figure out, Not to, again, not that this needs any detail. There, there was a way at a time to buy this stuff online, and it was certainly sketchy. But if you knew what you were doing, you could get real stuff. You could get a lot of different drugs. It was a really scary place, to be honest. And unfortunately, I'm sure something like that still exists. I don't know anything about it um, today. But I figured out how to do that, and all my money was illegal anyway from selling weed, so it's not like it was a big deal. I mean, I could, what was the worst that could happen? It gets lost. I couldn't really spend the money anyway. So I bought some of this, and I started taking higher dosages. And those higher dosages, you know, the feeling when it kicked in would start with, wow, I'm not anxious. And then it would go to, wow, I don't, I'm not even conscious, right? Like, I don't remember anything for hours at a time, sometimes even entire nights, um, and sometimes full days. I just don't feel anything. I don't have to worry. It's a temporary escape from reality, way more so than weed. But that had a consequence. Xanax, if I took that in school or I took it at a time where I had to still be awake. One, it was kind of hard to just stay awake with it. But two, this wasn't like weed where I was overall kind of a happy, giddy guy while on it. I would get angry, and I'd get very angry. I would start verbal fights with people. I would have no filter and would say whatever stupid thing came to my mind. I mean, it's those thoughts that are going through your head all day, like, you know, you walk by somewhere, and you're not even being mean to the person, but you might be like, oh, you know, I don't really like that dress, I don't like that shirt, whatever. And you just say that to someone. There, there's no inhibitions. So that had a huge effect on me. It was tough to get. I wasn't able, even with the online stuff, that was a very sketchy and stressful process trying to order that stuff and get it delivered. I didn't get it delivered to my house. I kind of figured out a system to get it delivered to someone else's house. So incredibly stressful, not something I wanted to do often. So I had to make the most out of the Xanax that I did have, and smoking weed made it stronger, but I eventually found that drinking alcohol made it stronger. So yes, my story is, this is correct. 
I used weed and alcohol, or excuse me, weed and Xanax before I ever touched a drop of alcohol. And again, not justifying anything, but my drug use started out, this was not a kid who was curious. This was not a kid who was trying to get high. This was a kid that was self-medicating. That really is the honest truth of it. I was doing so in a piss poor way, no doubt about it, but I was self-medicating. Alcohol, didn't like it in larger doses like a lot of my friends were doing at that point because this was a year or so into all of this but it made xanax a lot stronger really really dangerous combo um i had done a lot of research online trying to figure out what would work but the problem is you can do all the research in the world once you mix those things it's so strong that something else takes the wheel and what i mean by that is i would just fully blackout. I have no idea what I'm doing. I would get behind um, the wheel of a car, my car like that. I would drive around other friends who were messed up like that. And um, I drive around people I cared about, my girlfriend at the time, those types of things. And it it's hard for me to talk about this stuff even still it was extremely hard for me to put it in the book it took me so long to write these sections and what i thought was writer's block i clearly saw as just fear at the end of the book i just was like should i put this out there are people going to take this the wrong way and all i want people to know is i I swear to god i'm a decent dude i just there was no thought there was no thinking 10 minutes ahead let alone 24 hours ahead, let alone a year ahead. You know, some people in my high school, they're sober, they're planning for college, they're planning for their SATs, they're doing all these things, getting ready for their future. And I feel like I'm just trying to hang in there and hold on and make it another day. So when I did these things, I I wasn't thinking. And it would have been one thing if I had gotten hurt during those times, whether from an injury or driving the car, But I look back and I think, like, what if someone happened or something happened to the people that I cared about who were in those cars with me or even worse, because they made a voluntary decision. Not that that makes it any better, but they did make a voluntary decision. My friends kind of knew, but, you know, we're all young. We're stupid. What if someone on the road that has no idea that there's some blacked out teenager driving around at 5 p.m., 6 p.m.? I can't even think about what it would have been like to hit one of those cars carrying those passengers. I just put this in here and mention this still. So if anyone's out there doing this type of stuff, you have someone here, I'm not judging you. I'm not judging you up until this moment because I get what it's like to do that kind of crap and be almost completely unself-aware of what's happening. But if you continue to do it after hearing this, now I am judging you. Because I'm hoping that this kind of snaps you out of it for a second and you're really thinking about what's going on. I want you to actually imagine, and I know it's hard, I know it's tough, and I know it's messed up, but I think this is the only way that you'd ever stop doing it. Actually imagine what it would be like if you're behind a wheel and you crash into a car that had a mom, she's at the grocery store, she's got her baby in the back, and you hurt one of those people in that car. That is something that's going to change the trajectory of your life forever. And guess what? You're certainly not going to be doing drugs after that because you're going to be in jail. So please, if you're someone out there thinking it, I ain't judging you. I'm not judging you right now. But I'm going to judge you afterwards if you keep doing that kind of stuff. So please 
consider making this the day you stop doing that stuff. Consider making this the day maybe you ask for help or support with what you're dealing with because it's not fair to you and it's not fair to your family and it's not fair to the other people out there that are on the road. This escalation of using these three drugs to get messed up. I never, I've never tried another drug in my life. I tried other benzodiazepines, but they're, I mean, literally the exact same thing as Xanax for the most part. They just, some last longer, some hit you a little harder. They're all virtually the exact same effect um, for at least the ones that I tried. I, I didn't want to be doing other drugs. Like I, I didn't want, I'm not like, I wasn't like, oh, let's go do LSD. Let's go do shrooms. I mean, some people are like that, man. They just have that curiosity and maybe that's okay. Maybe it's not. I, I don't know if I'm one to judge that. I mean, I think there's Probably certain circumstances where that's a natural curiosity and then others where it is really not. I don't know that I'm qualified to speak on that. But I know for me, I never wanted to do that. I'm like, I don't, I'm not interested in doing drugs. I'm interested in feeling different and hiding what I'm going through. And this just, I was a mess, man. I was a mess. My whole life was trying to hide what I'm doing on a daily basis to the best of my ability from my family, especially from my friends to some degree. I mean, they knew I was a pothead. But I don't think they knew how bad the rest of this stuff was. I don't think they had any idea. And I'm doing so poor in school now. Um, you know, I'm failing classes. And for me, that was tough. That almost took work to fail a class. But I just, I'm not doing this stuff. I'm not remembering the information. I don't care. I have no, I have a sliver maybe of value left on my life at all. I just, there, there's no meaning. There's no purpose. It's just, let's try to get high. Let's try to feel different for the day. Let's try to escape what we're going through. And this isn't a conscious process, right? I want to be very clear about that. This is not a conscious thing where, oh, I, I feel depressed today. I'm going to take a drug. It, it's like you're running on autopilot. You're just not even thinking. I, I consider myself a pretty self-aware person now. So I'm wondering, where was that at this time? Do drugs affect that? Do mental health issues affect that? I don't know. I'm not a researcher. I haven't seen any research on it. But if you know something about that, shoot that my way. Because I just, the best way I can describe it is I always feel like someone took away my self-awareness and I'm just running on autopilot. Now, most people have the common sense to know that you cannot live a life like this. You can't go on like this. People that do this type of stuff, they, they lose one of three things. They lose friends, family, their freedom, um, or their life. Friends and family I group together. And there was a time, I obviously didn't lose my life, but I did kind of lose relationships with friends and family. And I definitely lost my freedom at one point because of how bad the situation got. I mean, I was doing absolutely crazy stuff during that time frame, selling weed and just doing drugs every single day, getting high not taking school seriously. I mean, just barely hanging on, wondering, you know, what's, what is the point of all of this? Why do I continue to fight if I feel this way? And I got to the point two weeks into my senior year of high school. So remember, uh, when I first started talking about this, that's my freshman year. You know, this, is, this has been going on for a while. And junior year was particularly bad. It, it got worse every year. Um, but junior year was particularly rough. I... I'm almost positive I was not only high every single day, I know that, but I was high every single day of school, which was just crazy to think about looking back. 
the summer between junior and senior year, I'll kind of set the stage. because I said the beginning of senior year, but I want to say one thing first. That summer between junior and senior year, I did know something had to give. I knew something was going to pop. And I don't know how to describe it, but weed, I mean, it almost did nothing for me. I mean, there was no high to it anymore. There was no fun. What weed did is take me to this awkward space in my mind where I had this almost self-awareness but a very negative self-awareness i was like what are you doing like why are you smoking every day you don't even like this like you can't stop you don't like this but you continue to do it and i just questioned myself in the oddest and strangest ways it it was weird because i i would ask myself why do i keep doing it and then autopilot i light the joint And I keep doing it. And it didn't matter how much I smoked. Like I said, I really just, I couldn't even get high. I just, I'd kind of just wonder how, how much longer can this last? I was very aware that it was going to come to an end, but I did not, or I wasn't able to even fathom how it would come to an end. So this was happening the entire summer. Senior year came around and... I started to have some realizations, a little bit of self-awareness was coming back, if you will. And I was two weeks away from my 18th birthday, my birthday, September 30th. So school year, as you know, starts late August, early September. And that two week mark was significant because I was sitting to my, or I was saying to myself, wait a second, if I get caught doing what I'm doing at 18 versus 17 years old, I'm going to jail. Like, this is not going to be good. This is going to be a very bad situation. I can't get caught selling weed. I cannot get caught driving around high and drunk and on Xanax. I mean, I'm, this is serious consequences. Not that it wasn't serious at 17, right? But I, I was smart enough to realize, okay, this is going to be a little less severe than at 18. This is something that I can probably get erased. And at the honestly, at the time, I didn't even care. Like at 17, I didn't really care. There was something about that 18 thing that snapped me back in and said like, okay, I, I care about this. I don't want this to happen. So I made a pact to myself. I really did. I decided I was going to do better in school. I decided I was going to stop doing drugs every day. But that meant I had to stop selling drugs. But that was the only reason I was doing drugs every single day. So I was like, all right, I'm going to stop doing all of this and I'm going to figure this out. And I really did get this short burst of motivation, but I am still out here trying to play doctor, trying to play hero, trying to do this by myself and not opening up about what's going on. And I managed to be sober uh, for about 36 hours. Day and a half, I stopped smoking weed, I stopped doing drugs, and What happened next, I can only contribute to some type of psychological or something withdrawal because I never felt the way I felt during that end of, during the end of the 36 hours before that day or after that day. But I looked back at my life during that time. This was during the school week and I was reflecting on my life for the first time in a couple of years with sober eyes. And I'm looking back and I'm like, dude, you are failing school. Your family, like definitely immediately family at least, is worried about you. The relationships are strained. My relationships with my friends were terrible. 
I treated the you know girl I was with at the time awful. I couldn't handle that. The mix of not having the drugs and this rush of looking back at my life and realizing, dude, you are destroying everything. And on top of all of this, I have mental health issues. I have severe mental health issues. I couldn't take it. And I left school that day. Um, this is, I guess, technically the second day. It was around that 34, 35, 36 hour mark, roughly. And something happened that would change the course of my life forever. I got on the highway and I looked to the right of me. So the highway was a couple minutes from school. I looked to the right of me and out of the back of a bus, a school bus on the highway, are two kids flipping me the middle finger. And it's a prank. It's a joke. It's stupid. They don't know me. I don't know them. I'm in my car. They have no idea that I even go to the same school district as them. The feeling I felt in that moment was so disproportionate to what should have been felt in a situation like that. A normal response would be, um, one, ignore it. Maybe if you're having a bad day, maybe you throw the bird back at the kids. That's about it. But I started cursing. I started slamming on the steering wheel. I could feel the rage just building in my body. I could feel my face flushing. I was getting red. And the thoughts rushing through my head. It wasn't this clear, but it was kind of like all this stuff is going on in my life. I'm failing school. I'm failing as a friend. I'm failing as a boyfriend. I'm failing as a family member. Like I'm a loser. I can't control any of this, or I felt like I couldn't control any of that, but I can control this one situation. This is the icing on the cake, and there is no way I'm going to let these stupid people flip me off, and I followed the bus. I followed the bus for about 30 seconds, a minute maybe. It, this is a tough memory, and the kids stopped. So they're about to get off on an exit that I wasn't going to get off on. So I got back on the road, figured it's over. And out of the side of the bus, as the median started to split the road from the exit, they came to the side window and they flipped me off again. I snapped. I took my car and I literally just slammed on the brakes. And this is a highway, man. I mean, people are going 55, 60 miles per hour. I just, I don't even remember if I looked in my mirrors. I wasn't checking anything. I went in that car and I just slammed it into reverse after I stopped it. And I went all the way back and I got on the ramp and I started following that stupid school bus again. And I swear to God, all my life, all my family members' lives, the next thing that I remember or the last thing I remember, I should say, is the kids putting their fingers down. I know at one point, I'm almost positive at one point, that I do remember this situation. At some point, I have blocked this out of my mind. At least being involved in it as a first person. But I do remember it as a third person. And what I mean by that is there was a video of the incident 
that I saw. And I still can see a decent enough picture of that in my head. I'll have to rewind to about two weeks after that incident. And I promise I'm going to tell you guys it. But I have to, or excuse me, fast forward, not rewind. Fast forward two weeks, two and a half weeks after the incident. And I'm now sitting in my superintendent of my school district's office with my parents, my house principal. I believe my guidance counselor was there as well. And the superintendent gave me one chance to tell my story and explain why I thought what I did two and a half weeks ago was an okay thing to be doing. And again, I didn't fully remember it. I didn't want to tell them that. I didn't want to say that I felt like I lost control. I felt like I blacked out. Their question would have been, well, were you on drugs? And I couldn't even honestly answer that. I couldn't say yes. No, I was actually sober for the first time in a couple years and I blacked out. That scared me. If I hadn't thought I was crazy before, I definitely thought it now. So I'd gotten a lot of trouble over the last two weeks and I knew what I did. So I thought, so I told the best version of the story that I could. But it wasn't good enough, and he looked at me, and that room was silent. You could hear a pin drop. And he just said, almost like a almost like a disapproving father, like you, you disappointed your dad or something. And he just said, okay. And he picked up a clicker, like a PowerPoint clicker, off the table. And what he did not tell me was he had that cell phone video that I mentioned. A kid had recorded it at the bus stop of the incident. And he was about to play that in front of all these people and my parents to compare that to the story that I had just given them. Those stories did not match up that well. What I saw on the screen made me legitimately sick to my stomach. I was bordering on being in a shade of a state of shock. I really couldn't believe it. The neighborhood had this kind of cul-de-sac thing. And it was a cul-de-sac that you could still... It wasn't a full cul-de-sac because it wasn't the end, but you could turn in it and go to another road. On the corner of that turn is a house. It's a typical neighborhood house. And my car is parked on the lawn of this house for some reason. And my door is wide open. And that's just about when the recording started when I was getting out of my car. Now what I didn't tell you guys is I had been robbed a few times for dealing with the sketchy people that I was dealing with. I had people that took weed from me. I had people that took money from me. And I'm not an intimidating guy now physically. I've Never been a huge guy. I was very, very small and unathletic back then. I would say I was about probably 5'11", 6 feet, same height, but about 150 pounds. So I wasn't fighting anyone. I had no interest in doing that. I had started fights with people my size in school that were just stupid because 150 pounds, 6 feet, fighting 150 pounds, 6 feet is like a pillow hitting a pillow. So nothing even came of it. But I couldn't defend myself if people robbed me. So I took it upon myself at one point to buy one of those stun guns. That's, just to be clear, the things that cops have, it's 
kind of like it's not the one that shoots out even though that's the name that it sounds like it is the thing that you click it makes the crazy noise and would have to touch it to someone's skin now most people don't know you can legally buy these at 18 it's not an illegal thing you don't need a background check it's not something like that so 18 online just means you need to have a debit card so i would always go online with the money i had from um selling weed and I would use a prepaid debit card. So I never had to have a bank account. I was able to get online and do those things. And I bought one and I ordered it to the same house that my friend had uh, gotten the drugs delivered to. I never used this thing. I'd never even had to threaten someone with it. And it was never supposed to be used. This wasn't someone robs me of weed and I actually stick them with it. It just makes a crazy sound. It was supposed to scare them. Well, I had that in my car at all times because I was selling weed. And I'm now watching myself walk from my car towards the two kids that were flipping me off. And there's about, it had to be 10 or 15 other kids in a circle. And they are just yelling, you know, stop, stop, stop. And I'm threatening these kids with this thing, saying things to them that I would not repeat on this podcast for flipping me off. As a joke, what must have been 15 or 20 minutes before. There's two things going through my head when I'm in that conference room of my superintendent. And one was that, dude, you actually are crazy. Like, what the hell is this? And two was just, I deserve everything that I'm going to get. I got kicked out of school that day. Um, that was the day I got kicked out of my high school in Central Bucks. Rewind to the two and a half weeks before, it was probably about 10 minutes after that incident. The thing that I remember next that I can still see consciously in my mind is I'm driving down the highway and a cop pulls out behind me. And <laughs> I just knew. I'm like, I messed up. This is bad. And his lights went on after probably a mile, mile and a half of driving. He came up really normal, really cool at first. Um, and I acted overall calm at first. And then another cop came. And another cop came. Another cop came. There was four or five cars. And they surrounded it. And I kind of knew it was over. I mean, I wasn't getting out of the car until all those other ones came. But at that point, I'm like, what am I fighting this for? This is done. So I got out of the car. And I got taken to the station. And this is significant. I'm at the police station. And I'm on a bench with one arm handcuffed to the wall. This is a classic little police station cell. One door, one way in, one way out. These tough walls, cinder blocks, or just stone, whatever it is, right? It's not like literal cinder blocks that are unpainted, but it's that it's a very hard wall, right? This isn't something like drywall. And all you have is this bench. It's like a foot and a half wide. I'm handcuffed to this thing. And I couldn't have been in there for more than 15 minutes. And of all things to do, there's, there's lights on in it. There's a camera in it. Obviously, cops are coming back in to talk to me in a second. They're supposed to be at least. And I lay down on that bench and I fell asleep for a few hours. Now, there's two ways that you could perceive that. The first would be a concerning one, and that would be, who could sleep in a time like that? And I would say your concern is justified, and that's valid. 
Until I tell you the reason that I fell asleep. This was not because of a lack of concern. It was relief. It was absolute, utter relief. And what I mean is, I was done. I was tired of hiding the fact that I was doing drugs every day from all these people constantly looking over my shoulder, having to live two lives, worried about getting caught, failing school, not talking about my mental health issues. Not that I was ready to talk about them then. I'm not saying that, but I just, like I knew I had these problems. I knew I'm fighting these demons and I knew at any day bad things could happen because of it. And I'm just like, it's over. It's over. I'm monitored now. I'm not thinking this consciously, but I just, it was so obvious after a couple months looking back, I'm like, I was just relieved. (laughs) I was just so thankful that it was over. And a few hours later, you know, the cops come in um, and they didn't wake me up. I don't know why they didn't wake me up. I don't know if they thought I was joking. I don't know if they thought I was just being a jackass or something and they weren't going to humor it, but I, I fell asleep and they called my dad. They told him um, he was the one that came because my mom um, was having a medical procedure during that time. And, you know, I went to the juvenile detention facility. And same thing there. I, I got in. Um, you know, they do some tests. They give you a tuberculosis shot, whatever. And I fell asleep for like 10 hours in this cell. And this is after I just slept for a few. There was just, at that moment at least, that there was a feeling of just, I'm done. I don't have to do this anymore I can't control myself I feel like that I can't like I can't control myself at least it's over there are a lot more details to this my book is called overcoming mental health challenges how I resolved 13 years of mental health issues naturally and I am going to talk about some of the resolution but I'm just letting you guys know if you want some more details on this situation the book is available on Amazon um, you just search that or you can search Evan trans so it's the first thing that comes up the book um, we'll get shipped to you if you're local. I do have a few copies on hand. I mean, I know people are going to be listening to this podcast episode at varying times, but if you're listening to this as soon as it came out and we are in quarantine 2020, COVID-19, we're in the midst of that right now, you can hit me up. I got a few copies left. I could deliver it to you in person, social distancing stuff, you know, um, I'll sanitize it. Just leave it in your mailbox or front porch or something. But uh, shipping might take a little while on Amazon, depending on when you're listening to this. But I still want to get into certain aspects of this because I'd love to tell you that that moment where, you know, I'm getting arrested or the moment that I'm going to juvie or the moment that I ended up spending house arrest on my 18th birthday, which was by far the worst day of my life. um, Or the day that I got kicked out of school, that one of these days is going to be the day that I wake up and fix things. And that just wasn't it. The next three and a half months while on house arrest and while on Uh, probation up until New Year's Eve of that year, which is ironic, but I'll explain that in a second. They were some of the worst drug binges I had ever been on. The worst part about all of this that made everything in this story 10 times worse was the fact that I was too smart for my own good sometimes. I was smart enough that even at a young age, I could do generally well at hiding these things from parents from even a probation officer. And I'm not saying this was a foolproof plan. No, there were times that if people had drug tested me at the right time or came into my room at the right hour of the middle of the night, I could have gotten caught doing certain things. But 
overall, as long as I was somewhat precautious, I could figure out how to get around the rest of this stuff. And that's where it was almost a curse having that, you know, because I wasn't using it for anything good. I wasn't using it for school anymore. I was just using it to live this double life. So I was able to fake these things and convince my probation officer and even parents that I, I was doing overall okay. I'm getting better. I'm not doing stupid stuff on probation. But the truth is I was the minute, I mean, I did drugs on house arrest, but the minute I was allowed to be out um, is when things got really bad because I had turned 18 on house arrest. So I went to the doctors at one point and convinced them to give me a prescription for Xanax. So now I could fail the drug test on it. Um, I could smoke weed and drink alcohol as long as I did it at the right times. As long as, you know, those probation officers kept a consistent schedule for drug testing, I was good to go. I mean, I know this sounds like absolute madness, and it was, but I was, didn't even care. Didn't even think about it. This was just something, oh, I need to get high again. Like, I need to get high again, so I'm not being monitored well enough. You know, what are they going to do? Keep me in a, a, literally a cell 24-7? That's what they would have had to do. So I'm just doing whatever I can. And... Again, those were some of the worst drug binges I have ever been on. Uh, I, you know, driving around in a car, just completely whacked out of it with people that I really cared about. And um, it, it was just, it was a really bad place. Again, more details on that in the book. New Year's Eve of that year. Again, I said that was kind of an ironic thing, and it's an ironic thing because that New Year's Eve and New Year's Day would be truly a pivotal moment for me. What happened that night on New Year's Eve was that I literally convinced my parents and probation officer that I was doing well enough that I should be allowed out on New Year's Eve. Now, they did agree to this, but thankfully no one was that stupid. They said, okay, all right, you're allowed out on New Year's Eve. But you're home by 12 o'clock. And remember, I'm 18, so legally I should be um, allowed to go out all night without any, you know, real rules with that. But this was um, a consequence of probation. And I had to be home by 12.15. And I had to be picked up by mom and dad. So I think I just said something wrong there. But I don't want to re-record over something so silly. <laughs> um, this is the correct part. I, I had to be home at 12.15. Had to get picked up at 12. And I had to be picked up by mom and dad. Maybe I did say that right the first time. But I'm not someone to re-record over silly stuff. I just I try to be transparent. I'm not, even though I speak professionally, I certainly don't speak perfectly. It does happen. So anyway, those were the rules. Now, that sucked. I mean, that was definitely not a fun New Year's Eve. But it was better than sitting at home with my mom and dad all night. So I said, okay, great. All right, I'll go out. Well, being the person that I was, I just always had to push it to the limit and take it to the next step. So... The minute I get dropped off, I'm drinking, smoked some weed, believe I took Xanax that night, I'm not positive, but yeah, that's what I chose to do, and I'm doing that with my girlfriend, I'm doing that with some of my best friends, and one of our best friends thankfully stayed sober, and he ended up driving us to a house where uh, my parents knew I was going there, they were pick us up there. The mom was home, but she was allowing a New Year's Eve party to happen, and you know, you guys can judge that all you want, I know how some people are with that, but... There's two options. You're going to let your kid go out on New Year's Eve at 18 and they're going to do really stupid stuff or you have them in the house and you know, God forbid something really bad happens, at least you can get them help and they're not going to die. So again, you can judge it all you want, but that's, I don't really think that's the stupidest thing in the world for that parent to do. Anyway, 
We're at that house. I'm not really getting that messed up, seriously. I mean, I wasn't, certainly wasn't the most drunk I'd ever been. Certainly wasn't the highest I'd ever been. But I just, there's a disregard. Didn't care, whatever, I'm fine. My girlfriend was coming home with me that night. She's getting picked up by my mom and dad as well. And I had just made a plan. Okay, if I get caught, because I can handle this stuff. That was the crappiest and uh, most pathetic skill I ever developed was being able to handle my stuff pretty well. So if they said, did you drink? I would have said, guys, I got to be honest. I had a shot at New Year's Eve, like at 12 o'clock, just because all my friends are doing it. But as you can tell, I'm not drunk. And they wouldn't really be able to tell because I could hide it well girlfriend at the time <laughs> was not able to hide that so well. She was not nearly as experienced, I will say that, as I was. And we're, we get in the car and about maybe a minute in, 30 seconds in, she is fully repeating sentences. So my parents know that she's banged up and they turn around and rightfully so, start yelling at her. And they're saying, you know, how could you do this? You know, you couldn't go one night without being sober. I mean, Evan's doing well. What if his probation officer's there when we get home? And a half-decent dude would have kind of stopped this and said, hey, you know what? Listen, I'm not saying her actions were perfect. You know, we're 17, 18 years old. Obviously, neither of us are supposed to be drinking. However, I made some decisions this uh, tonight. The only reason she's getting picked up is because of me. And truth be told, I don't really think she would be doing what she did tonight if it wasn't for me. But I didn't say that. I went home and once we got there, I'm up in my room with um, her and I started freaking out at her. Again, similar to the uh, stun gun incident, saying things that I wouldn't say on a podcast. Just awful things, mean things. And I made this girl cry. Now, I cared about this girl. I didn't wanted to cry. I don't think you should make any girl cry ever. But that's what I did. And I woke up in the morning and I'm sober and she had left a little early. And again, I know that you guys are all sin-free people out there, but God forbid, just in case you've ever had a little too much to drink in your life and you've ever woken up with a hangover and you're sitting there with those thoughts of regret saying, wow, God, please, if you make me feel better, I will never, ever, ever drink again. And we all say that, right? I'm having those thoughts. I, I don't feel well. Alcohol never sat well with me. And even though I wasn't that drunk, I mean, I still, I wasn't in good shape. I'm having those thoughts, but another thought was happening. And it was this wave of self-awareness. And I felt bad. I felt bad that I'd made someone I cared about cry, someone that obviously cared about me because, you know, she had stuck with me through the stuff that I was going through. Um, and that realization was one where, again, the self-awareness is just hitting me really hard and it's opening up the floodgates for other self-awareness. I'm just laying there thinking to myself, dude, what a loser you are. Like, you're taking this stuff out that you don't want to deal with on the people you care about. And it wasn't just my girlfriend. I'm like, this isn't a battle between Evan Transu and his mental health issues anymore. It's Evan Transu, his mental health issues, and his girlfriend, and his parents, and his friends. I I'm bringing everyone else down with me. And that thought, man, or those thoughts, I should say, it just hit me like a brick wall. I am not saying, 
everything was perfect after that. I am not saying everything was sunshine and rainbows and, oh, voila, everything's, you know, back to normal. But that was a moment. It was a moment when I realized I need to change. I need to have a plan because the plan I have right now is going to wind me up in jail when these people figure out what I'm doing on probation. And I got no business being in jail. I ain't going to do too well there. Something had to switch. And that is when things started to get a lot better. This is the end of part one of my story. The other part is certainly not going to be an hour and a half long, probably going to be about 30 minutes, but my throat is actually killing me because I was uh, talking a bunch today. And for some reason, it's just not going too well. So I want to make sure I'm not making weird sounds or having to clear my throat a bunch of times for the rest of this podcast. So I'm going to release part two tomorrow. But for right now, thank you so much for listening. And please let me know what you thought about this podcast.